as you saw on the recap video, I was privileged to be a part of what was going on out there at Lake Havasu on the Arizona-California border. And uh, as all the newscasters were telling you, it was hot. <laughs> it was hot. And, and, you know, we traveled out there on the first day, and of course I was preaching every night. So I got there a couple hours before I was supposed to preach and threw everything in the room that they assigned to me. And thankfully it was great to see, because it was so hot, this giant ceiling fan over our head. Uh, and I thought, well, this is great because it's going to be like the most important appliance in, in our room. So I um, went over to look for the controls, thinking it would have like a low and a medium and a high, but it just had a switch. And you turned it on and all it had was off or like turbo speed. <laughs> and um, at that point, we needed it. So we, we turned it on, turned it on. And as it started to kind of go from the low whirl to, to the top speed, uh, we realized something was terribly wrong with the ceiling fan. It was like... Uh, like an old lady was getting beat with a bat. Um, it was like, and, and then it, it, it pivoted. It was on a down, it had like a, like a rod. The down rod was maybe a foot long, and it just it swung violently in the ceiling. And of course, I'm unpacking. i got to preach. I'm busy, and, and I'm like, well. But, you know, my wife wasn't digging it at all, so she's like, i to fix this. Um, I, I like to think I'm, I'm pretty handy, but I, I thought, I, I have no time, like, fix it. Like, what, I, I, I need, like, the guy to come from the, the, from the place and, and replace it is what needs to happen. But I thought, well, um, you know, I'm sure there's hundreds and hundreds of people checking it at the same time. I, I'm just going to, uh, to give it a go. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not MacGyver or anything, if you know who that is, but I, uh, I do travel with like my, my bag of tricks, like Felix and his bag of tricks, and I have a few things in there. You gotta have wire ties, you gotta have all the little, you know, simple tools. And then, of course, I always travel with a, with a roll of, of, of tape. Um, it's called gaffer's tape, the kind of, I don't, not duct tape, I'm not that extreme. But I, I travel with, with gaffer's tape, which is great. If you work in AV, you know this stuff. It's good stuff, and you know, it doesn't leave the permanent marks on the wall and stuff. But I, I use it for a lot of things when I travel. I travel a lot. And so anyway, I had my gaffer's tape. And I said, I can fix this with gaffer's tape and a little pocket change is what I thought. So I, it was in the upper deck of this, this place, and so it had a super high ceiling, super high for me, because I'm thinking, how am I going to get up there? I didn't, I didn't pack a ladder. And I, um, uh, but, you know. My wife's just watching in anticipation to see what's going to happen. But I, I, I moved the dresser over, and I moved a chair next to the dresser, and I stepped up on here, you know, thinking, i got to be careful. You know, i got to preach in a little bit here. Um, and, and so I get to work. I, I, I turn it on and then risk my life, stop the fan as it's bobbing and squeaking and screaming at me. And uh, I, I try to figure out, like, where is it, you know, where is it? Out of, it's clearly out of balance, right? So I don't know what kind of party they were having in there before we got there, but I thought, okay, i got to fix this. I can fix this with some quarters, right? So I, I, I find the blade that I think is the one on the opposite end of how it's swinging, and I thought, well, this, we got to get this one counterbalanced. So I, I took some tape, and you know how it is on the top of your ceiling fan? Have you been on the top of your ceiling fan lately? <laughs> Same way at the hotel, only worse. <laughs> so I, uh, I took a couple wraps of this, but I, I got a quarter in the right place, thinking, I think this is going to work. So I crawled down, turned it back on, and stood back, waiting for high praise, because that thing just was like, mm, I was like, I, I wanted like some, I wanted high praise at that point. <laughs> I, had, I had fixed this, and uh, you know, it's like, oh, thanks, yeah, no, 
I need to record that and travel with that. Because when it doesn't show up in person, I, I need that encouragement. But anyway, I was just, I was, you know, I was on the edge of like arrogant pride. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm awesome here. Look at this. And uh, then I kind of went back to work, put I got my little portal office because I had to prepare every day. And, and so uh, then we go off and, and we preach, I preach, and then we're done. And of course, there, these kids stay up so late, they're preaching so late. And, and I come back and the old man just wants to crash. So I, I crash and I go to sleep. And that thing's been humming for hours. And I'm just like, I'm just so, so peachy, happy about, about it. Until 2.13 in the morning. And, and there is something about when you're in a, you know, this wasn't vacation for me. This is like work and preaching and study. So my, my, my brain's pretty sharp. And I, was, I even impressed myself here. I mean, think about how self-aggrandizing these, this illustration is. I, I, I heard what I thought was a gunshot at 2.13 in the morning. And I sprung into action because I, I, I could even tell in my sleep, like, where, where the gunshot was coming from. And, um, and it just took me just a second to realize I, I know what happened, because once I fixed this with that dusty tape, I thought, this is like a, a discus thrower, you know? And it's going fast. This was fast. I mean, it was like hundreds of miles an hour is what it seemed like. That thing was spinning, and it held for, what, six hours? It, was, it had done well. Uh, but in the middle of the night, I realized there was no one shooting at me, but there was a high-velocity quarter that was flying just above head level, uh, toward the wall. Now, at 2.15 in the morning, you don't want to wake up fully, right? especially at our age. You don't want to wake up. You want to kind of stay partly asleep. But I couldn't help. The curiosity was killing me. Was it really that? Uh, and, and sure enough, the old lady starts screaming. That was it. I even got on my knees and crawled around for a little bit to see if I could find the quarter. But then with groggy eyes, I'm like, no, I just crawl back into bed, thinking, thinking my wife would wake up at some point during this whole event. But in the morning, I'm like, did you hear all the excitement at 2.15 in the morning? No, what was that all about? Well, I said, I, the, 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 the projectile hit, hit the wall. And sure enough, in the light of the morning, it took a divot out of the drywall. And so I'm like, I got to find this. So I crawl around, and sure enough, it's tucked under the bed. And I pull it out, and it's still got a piece of the, of the gypsum, of the drywall on it. And, and I realized at that point, really what we needed was what my wife had suggested, and that is you've got to call someone to get in here and fix this. And, and I chose to, uh, you know, to, to duct tape it, uh, which reminds me of a lot of these testimonies here today and all throughout the weekend. There are so many testimonies of people that are trying to make things right in their lives, right? And, and at the core, I mean, the main appliance of our lives, as the Bible puts it, is our, is our heart. That's the way it's described in our English text, our heart. And as Ezekiel 36 says, the problem is we have a heart of stone. It's messed up. It's not working properly. It is messed up. And you can take as much gaffer's tape and quarters to our heart as, as we want, but we cannot fix it in and of ourselves. It, it, it's, it can't be done. And we try and we try. We think it's going to make a difference, and, and it doesn't. What we need is we need the professional to come in and, and to replace it. And it's a beautiful passage there in Ezekiel 36. The, the heart of stone needs to be taken out, needs to be removed, and it needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. That change has to take place. And that's an internal change that happens by an exterior reality, which is a God who gets involved in the brokenness of our lives. We can't just try and do better, as we've heard in our testimonies throughout the weekend and certainly in this service. We can't just try to work harder. There has to be a change from the inside. 
penalty. And we use the words all the time. We talk about it a lot, repentance and faith. But there's a word that's tucked into all that, is weaved throughout the concepts of repentance and faith that I just want to look at for two minutes here this morning, this afternoon. And, and I want you to see it from a passage that should make it clear. If you want to get your heart changed out, you need this word that is all about that penitent faith, that turning and trusting. You've got to see this as the activity involved in it, and it's found in Psalm 51. So turn there real quickly with me. Pull it up on your phones or, 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 or grab a Bible and, and get this text in front of you. Now, if you know your Bibles well, you think about Psalm 32, Psalm 51, you think, oh yeah, those are the Psalms of David's heart cry of penitent faith. And you're right, he is repentant and, and he's responding to the guilt of his own heart. Look at the superscription in this, in, in verse 50, or, uh, Psalm 51, where it gets very specific that Nathan had come and confronted him about his adultery, his sin with Bathsheba, which was much more than that, right? It was a cascading set of sins that led him all the way to the murder. I mean, him orchestrating the murder of Bathsheba's husband to try and cover up this illicit you know, uh, uh, relationship he had and this child that he bore in, in this and had conceived, at least, and was soon to be born. So he's confronted, and you know the, the, the story, I trust, that he, he repents. Well, here's a song that he writes in response to this. And the word I want us to catch is this word that has to happen. It has to come from your, your heart. It's the thing that God works within you, and it's the word that we use in our English language. It's the word confession. We have to confess our sins. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, these psalms talk about that concept of, of, of confession. And confession, of course, is going to assume that I'm, 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 I'm repudiating my sin and I'm turning to God in, in trust. But the thing that's happening is, is confession. And all of these people this morning that have come to testify to their relationship with, with Christ, right, they have confessed their sins to him. And some of them got specific. You may look at Brandon, a long list of things. Why do I have to do all that? Well, look at this song and see if you don't see the reflection of what we've been hearing, hearing about this morning. Start here in verse number one. Here's what, what David says. Have mercy on me, verse 1, Psalm 51, 1. Oh God, according to your steadfast love. He needs mercy. God, please, don't, don't punish me as I deserve. Right? And, and let your, your hesed, that Hebrew word, that let your, your covenant-lasting, enduring love, the love that you have that is so different than human love. Right? According to that, please have mercy on me. According to your abundant mercy. You have more mercy than any human being. I, I want you to blot out now, here's the word I want to emphasize when, when we talk about confession. My transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I see it. I know it. I've done it. Transgression, iniquity, sin. I, I, I get it. Now, this is something that is so clear to him. It can't be a general confession. And this is the problem with so many people that say, I want to get right with God. I want what those Christians have. I want to be in the family of God. And, and some people will say, well, repeat these words after me. And you'll hear someone talk about a sinner's prayer. We heard it in the tank this morning, people trying to walk through a sinner's prayer. And usually it's just some statement about, you know, forgive me of my sins. And God, I know I'm a sinner. You've heard these phrases before. But there's no specificity to that kind of confession. Confession and agreeing with God that I'm a sinner is, is this kind of thing. Like, I know my transgressions right? I, I, my sin is ever before me, right? Watch me through it from my, I, this is, I own this, and this is specific. Now, the superscription makes it clear why he's praying this prayer, right? He knows exactly what he's done, and it's ever before me. It's clear to him. So let me just make this point. If you're going to confess your sin to God, it needs to be specific, right? Now, I know you can't possibly catalog all the sins of your former life, but, but you better have some in view, 
that you're saying, this is representative of the kinds of things that I'm repudiating and I'm agreeing with you is sinful. I'm being specific about my confession. We need to be specific. And he goes on to say in the next line here, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Justify in your words. If you had words of condemnation for me, I know you'd be totally right, totally justified if you, if you had me killed. Right? If you had people come and pick me up, the Levitical priest, and they dragged me in you know, to the Kidron Valley and they all threw rocks on me and I was murdered, uh, I mean, I was, I'm sorry, I was executed for the murder of Uriah, I'd be totally justified. If, if, your, if your judgments upon me came, I, I would have to agree with them. You'd be totally justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's a kind of sincerity that many people don't have in their confession. Not only are they not specific, they're not as sincere in their confession about how bad the sin is that they think they actually deserve the punishment. See, when real confession takes place, a kind of penitent faith, a repentance and and a faith in Christ, the confession that comes out is so sincere that we recognize that we deserve God's judgment. That's what confession does. It's it's a kind of specific, sincere confession. And not only that, look at the next line here. It goes back all the way to the beginning of our lives. Behold, I was brought forth, verse 5 says, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In the place that no one can see, I know what you demand, and as far as I look back in my life, all I see is inconsistency and hypocrisy. And the reality is that this statement about conceived in sin has nothing to do with his mother's sexual relationship, right? This has, he wasn't conceived as some kind of product of some fornication or adultery. He's making a statement about the fact, like he does in Psalm 68, that, that we go astray from birth. And if you were to think back to as far back as you can think, and you know what you've been taught, either by parents or Sunday school teachers, or you just knew because your conscience had taught you the, the wisdom in the secret place of your heart, you know that your life did not measure up to that. And, and you know that from the beginning, you'd say, this is, this is I'm so off the mark here. I, I'm not only ashamed of what I've done here, and David's ashamed of what he's done with Bathsheba and Uriah, but I'm ashamed of everything that goes back in, in, in my past. And for you and I to get honest about, about our sin, that's what confession is, is not only specific, right? it's not only something sincere, but it's something that brings shame. And I'll tell you what, most people don't want that. You don't want to go to church and feel ashamed. Most people would say, well, that's the last thing I want you to feel is shame. You're never going to have the forgiveness that comes after confession unless our confession takes on the guilt of our sin and we feel it. Everyone here testifying to the the freedom from the guilt of our sin starts with embracing the fact that we are guilty. And that comes as a visceral experience that I've done wrong here. I believe that you would be justified to punish me, a sincerity to that confession. And I know this, that as far back as I can think, right? I just know this has been the pattern of my life, an inconsistency between what I know is right and how I live. And, And I'm ashamed of that. There's a sense of guilt that he embraces in this statement. You got to go through the portal, the humbling portal of a confession that is specific and sincere and shame, shame inducing, right? That you feel the shame of it until you can get to the promise of what everyone's testifying to here this morning. Look at the next verse. The good news is there's a solution. Verse seven, purge. That's a good verb, right? Get rid of this in my life. I want all of this icky sin, guilt, all the things I feel bad about, all the specifics, all the pattern of sin in my life. I want it to go away. Purge it, get it out of my life. 
Now, what I'm expecting here is something like that makes sense. But the next two words, I'm thinking, they don't, they don't make sense. With hyssop, hyssop. Sounds like a cough medicine. With hyssop. What, what is hyssop? Right? And unless you're a botanist or you know the Bible well, you, you, you don't know what hyssop is because no one has gone and said, go to the store and get me some hyssop. Right? Hyssop, hyssop is, a, is a branch. It's a plant. It's kind of like a tumbleweed with a really tight, compacted branch structure that was used uh, basically, I mean, in short, as a paintbrush. You could take a piece of it, break it off, cut it off, and you could wrap something around the branch if you wanted to make it a nice hyssop branch. And it be, it's like this little, uh, you know, kind of looks like a cauliflower ball, but it's all branches, and you could take it and use it as, as a paintbrush. And it was a helpful paintbrush. Uh, and yet, in the Bible, we don't read about the hyssop in, use, in terms of, you know, painting your, your fence. We see it, first of all, in Exodus, when God is saying, you know what, you're guilty, the Egyptians are guilty, but I would like to not punish you. To not punish you, I will have my justice pass over you if you would take a lamb, a year old, without blemish, have it live in your home for almost a week. At the end of the week, at twilight, I want you to slaughter that lamb. I want you to catch the blood of that lamb in a basin. I want you to take that basin over to the doorway. I want you to take a hyssop branch, dip it in the, in the blood, and I want you to paint your doorposts with it. That's just a weird thing. I mean, from our perspective, it's so bizarre, right? I'm painting the lintel and the doorpost of my house with a hyssop branch. Okay, well, of course, that went from the ceremony that allowed God's justice not to visit the sinning Israelites, but to pass over them, to, to grant them forgiveness as though they hadn't sinned, but it also became part of the Levitical priesthood and how they function within the, within the, the temple and before that, the tabernacle. They would use the hyssop branch for a variety of things, but including taking the blood of the sacrifices and slapping and, and, and like, a, like a whip, taking it and, and taking the blood in the hyssop branch and, and putting it against the sides of the altar. This was a picture of purification, that God would take the blood, which seems, it, it seems like it makes no sense, something that stains to take away the stain. Now, in the New Testament, of course, we understand that the blood of bulls and goats, to quote the book of Hebrews, does not take away sin. But the picture of the innocent lamb being accepted in your behalf as a sinning worshiper and to have the blood of that innocent lamb be acceptable as a, as a picture of the redemption that you need. The innocent dies for the guilty. You go home without sin, or you go home feeling like your conscience is free because that animal's blood has atoned, kafar, this Hebrew word, to cover your sin. It, it's to where the sin isn't even seen as on your account anymore. That's the picture. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You'd think if you got blood thrown on you, wouldn't be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. You Sunday school graduates, you, you know Isaiah chapter 1, right? The picture of, though my sins are as scarlet, right? though they be red like crimson, they'll be white like snow. My sins will be washed away, purged, clean. Now, all of that is external. Again, the concept of the testimonies of so many people before they became Christians was if I just tried harder, worked this out, kind of scrubbed out my sin, atoned for my sin by my behavior, kind of turned over a new leaf, I would have this sin go away. But the Bible says something alien to you, something external to you has to be applied to you in God's economy so that that blood, right, that picture of punishment and sacrifice could take your sins and, and expunge your account. 
That's the, of course, we know from a New Testament perspective, the, the ultimate fulfillment is when Christ comes and dies on a Roman execution rack after his back had been filleted and that cross was covered with blood and his face was covered with blood with all those thorns stuck into his brow and he's, he's a bloody mess. As Isaiah says in its predictive prophecy, marred more than any man. He just looks awful, having hung there and swollen in his face after being beaten and whipped, hanging naked and just drenched in his own blood. That's the picture of your salvation, where God says the blood, not of bulls and goats, but the precious blood of Christ, to use the words of Peter, right, has ransomed you and redeemed you from your sins. And the picture here is you can't do that yourself. Christ has to do that for you to expunge your account. See, the great thing about what God brings to our lives, forgiveness, in which you should be confident, is the fact that Christ had to provide something external to you, the death of Christ. Look at the next verse now. Not only is this external reality of some kind of blood that's going to cleanse me, but verse 6, it allows me to hear, I'm sorry, verse 8, it allows me to hear joy and gladness. It says, let the bones that you've broken, right, in the guilt-inducing reality of seeing my sin that led me to confession, now let my bones that you've broken, let them rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, David knows that's the reality of how God promised it would work. You confess your sins, and God will forgive you. It's a kind of specific, sincere, and shame-inducing kind of confession. But it brings some kind of external payment, which we know is through the second person of the Godhead, that comes from the first person of the Godhead, the Father, who now promises that if you do this, then I'll do that. Right? And by God's grace, he produces this wonderful confession that comes through a penitent faith. And he says, if you confess your sins, to quote the New Testament, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the picture. Whether it's episodic for you as a Christian or whether you're thinking about come, becoming a Christian and God is drawing you to this, it takes a confession. Whether it's the wholesale beginning of the Christian life or whether it's you, as Peter said when he said, wash me through, he said, you're already washed, but your feet get dirty walking through this world. And, and what you need is cleansing. You need your, your feet washed. You do that through the same thing, confession. I confess my sins. It's specific. Right? It's sincere. It induces shame and guilt in my life that then I immediately have a sense of relief because the external work of Christ on a cross is applied to me that makes me clean. I trust now the fact that God does what he said he would do. He is faithful, always consistent, and righteous, and perfectly just to do what he said. He keeps his promise. The Son provides the external payment. The Father has a promise on which we can depend. And then lastly here, look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Instantly, the focus goes into the interior life of David after forgiveness, after embracing the promise of God. And now we have this discussion about the Holy Spirit and his spirit, which to tie this together to the first verse that I quoted in Ezekiel 36, the point of me being clean now is that my spirit will be made new by God in the new covenant relationship with people and God, and the Holy Spirit would invade my life. So my spirit is upheld by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, which you don't have to beg him to be not taken from you because the New Testament says, Ephesians 1, he is the guarantee, right? He is the seal and guarantee of your inheritance. So he comes and permanently indwells us and upholds our spirit so that we can get up 
from our, 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 our knees in confession and say, we know the alien external righteousness of Christ and the absorption of the sin on the cross has now been applied to me. The Father is going to be faithful. The external promise of God is going to be kept so that I can be forgiven. And the alien, the external spirit of God is now going to dwell with my remade spirit so that I can, to put it in the words of Ezekiel 36, walk in step, that I can be led to follow the precepts of the Lord. And I can get up from my sin and say, this is not going to define me. This is not going to be a continuing recurring pattern of my life. Even though we stumble in many ways, it may be an up and down you know, stock ticker, but God is going to move me from one level of glory and obedience, to quote 2 Corinthians, to another level and another level. That's called progressive sanctification. It's going to continue to move me in that direction by the involvement of the Spirit of God in my life. The confidence I have is based not on myself. We've made that the theme of our morning, but on Christ's payment, the Father's promise, and the Spirit's presence in my life that brings me the power to get up and say, yes, I am forgiven. It starts with confession. And a lot of people want all the goodies of the confidence of being forgiven without all the reality, which is rough, of real confession. But confession leads to forgiveness, a confession that's sincere and specific, and one that is shame-inducing. I'll give you that. But all that shame immediately goes away because our sins are appended to the cross and the promise of God is faithful and righteous. And the Spirit of God says, I'll take you from here and move you forward. That's what we need. That's what we've testified to this morning. That's a continual reality of the Christian life. Duct tape, gaffer's tape, can't fix it. It's God's exterior work that he promises to give you. You just have to be willing to confess your sins to him. You do that, change your whole perspective on what it means uh, to be a follower of Christ. It, and grace is going to look so different from that perspective. Let me pray for you. God, we want to be amazed at grace, that you would be so full of mercy, to use David's words here, your words ultimately, you taught us to sing that your mercy is great, that your loving kindness, your faithful love is tenacious, that your promise is true, that we can be confident. Every person's room could be confident big request, but could be confident that they're leaving here today completely forgiven, that their sins are not on their account. They could do that, God, but they've got to confess their sins. They've got to have that kind of repentance, the repulsion of sin and saying, God, we trust you. We know we're sinners. We agree with you. Our sins are clear. They're here. We know what they are. We know we deserve punishment, but instead... We trust in Christ's blood, the finished work of Christ. We trust in the promise of the Father. We trust in the presence of the Spirit. And we will move forward with that sense of freedom from guilt and sin. So God, do this for us today and for those that are on the fence. Draw them, drag them across. Let the conversations on the patio out there be turned to conversations about help me understand what the pastor said. And let, let us have conversations where people are being uh, drawn by the exhortation of their fellow uh, churchgoers here to be brought to faith in Christ and real confession. Thank you for the promise of forgiveness. We cling to that, God. It's amazing grace, and, and we want to just be profoundly affected by that here this morning as we think of all these great testimonies we've heard in Jesus' name. Amen.